Season's greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. With Christmas almost upon us, I felt this episode ought to be devoted to spiritual matters, so I have turned to the most sacred of skiing texts, Snowbird Secrets, which I co-wrote with Guru Dave Powers during the summer of 2012. As December is the 12th month, I've selected Chapter 12 on Hands and Feet for your listening pleasure. As the Goo and I did with every chapter, we ground its lesson by taking the reader on an actual run down the mountain, where its teaching comes into play. I would be remiss in my hosting duties if I didn't mention that Snowbird Secrets is available on Amazon. It would make an incredibly thoughtful gift for any skier in your family. I wish you all a very happy holiday season. And now, Chapter 12 of Snowbird Secrets on Hands and Feet. Let's be clear on one point from the get-go. You don't ski with your hands. Your hands are uber important, as we're about to relate, but they're not feet. If we skied with our hands, we'd have little skis on them instead of mittens or gloves. Since skis are instead on our feet, feet become the primordial appendage. But hands are a close second. The two tandem players ought to operate in unison, just as they do when you stride. Of all the activities to which skiing can be compared... The one that most closely resembles it is walking. It's just that you're able to walk very, very fast. Because the feet are doing the heavy lifting, there are all sorts of things the hands can be doing while you ski along, as anyone observing on-slope behavior can attest. There's the ex-racer who still hallucinates gates, knocking imaginary slalom poles out of the way with every direction change, his hands busier than if he were swatting away a swarm of bees. There's Mr. Double Pole Plant, firing both barrels ahead, accompanying each forward thrust of the upper body with a disconnected wiggle of the hips. Robot Mom holds both her hands in the upright and locked position from which they never move. Lord only knows what the monoskiers are up to. The trench digger lays over every turn as if he were channeling Ted Ligety. There's barely enough room for a fist under his laid-over legs, much less a ski pole, which instead is tucked out of the way in his slipstream. The Mogelmeister may ski with a pole cut short enough for a midget, and pipe and park rats use poles so stumpy we should have another name for them, like pipettes. Despite this diversity, each of these citizens manages to get down the hill, albeit with mixed success and varying degrees of aesthetic appeal. The unifying thread that runs through all of these techniques isn't biomechanical, but psychological. Each of them knows, from the frozen housefrau to the imaginary gatebasher, that their hands are important. They do what they do because they understand that as goes their manual units, so goes the union of their hurtling bodies. Every element that makes up the entirety of the skier is linked to every other, but nowhere is the bond greater than between hands and feet. The primal importance of hand position is never more evident than when your feet fail you. Suppose you're picking your way down the moguls that dot the top of Silver Fox when the downhill ski skips out and your hips rotate out of the fall line. You're heading for a ragdoll pinwheel adventure with at best a graceless outcome, unless, in that same instant, you find your uphill hand and punch it downhill with whatever power you can generate. This headfirst lunge down the fall line will square your shoulders and unlock your hips, giving your skis a chance to cut under you. With hands, shoulders, and hips in the fall line, skis cannot be far behind, and just as suddenly as you envision certain doom, you are back in the saddle. Even when you're not about to eat it, your hands tell the rest of your body what to do while your feet are busy making turns. 
Your torso is attuned to your hand's bossy attitude. It will always try to follow their lead. So keep them forward, point them where you want to go, and don't get lazy with the uphill hand. Generations of skiers have been taught to plant the pole on the inside of the turn, so that hand is often extended, as if in greeting to the fall line, while the uphill hand takes a nap somewhere alongside the thigh. Until you are a skier of world-class capabilities, you cannot afford sleepy hands. The uphill hand that you've left in a mini coma will be called upon in a trice to reach again downhill. It should be in an on-call position, not on sabbatical. It should be carried no lower than it would be if you were about to draw a sidearm from a holster. You're engaged in an athletic endeavor, so try to look like it. Like an orchestra conductor, a skier can use his or her hands to add emphasis to a given beat. To get extra drive on the downhill ski when you have to hold an arc at speed, press the hand above that ski down over it as if it were exerting a force field down on the ski's nervous forebody, and use the bonus force to push off the edge and transition to the uphill ski. It may sound more like telekinesis than Newtonian physics, but the hands inform the feet all the way down the mountain. Watch as coaches or talented instructors try to explain how to pressure and edge a ski. Inevitably, they will demonstrate foot position using their hands. Holding their palms down and fingers extended, they bank their hands side to side, simulating the foot positions that define the most accurate, efficient edging technique. Look at those hand movements and think of your feet moving your boots on parallel planes. Let your mind absorb the concept. Turning is about edge angles. Edge angles are about tilting your boot soles. Tilting your boots can be affected with ankle, knee, and or hip. And seamless transition between turns are about changing edge angle and pressure in harmony with the hill. The interdependence of hands and feet, while always in play, is perhaps most in evidence when skiing deep powder. The hands are up and out of the snow, helping to keep the upper body erect and balanced. They hold the keys to quietude, a message to the trunk to keep cool, calm, and collected so the feet can do their business unimpeded. And the feet are busy indeed, busier than the hands, which only have to keep the beat while the feet switch angles nearly every instant. Invisible beneath the churn of flying snow, your feet increase their banking angle as the legs extend them to the side, then gradually reduce it to zero at the moment they pass under your butt, before replicating the variable banking motion in the other direction. Your feet would have a hell of a time doing this efficiently if your hands weren't helping to keep your core in neutral. But even brilliant feet working in synchronicity with properly positioned hands can't do everything. They need the cooperation of one other partner in particular, your head. At the risk of stating the obvious, your head should be engaged in the business of figuring out where you're going. This seemingly simple-minded advice is pertinent because most skiers do this rather poorly. If they were driving a car instead of skiing, they would be looking no further ahead than the hood ornament. This is why events sometimes overtake skiers first learning to attack the fall line. They don't look far enough ahead to anticipate terrain that will be under them in a heartbeat. The further you can learn to look down the hill, the more clearly you can envision your immediate future. Then your skiing can evolve from the mechanics of turning to flowing, to moving with the hill in a dynamic dance in which you are the ever-changing, ever-quiet center. 
The acid test for coordinating hands and feet is managing speed on steeps, particularly those precipitous lines that narrow to a dicey choke point requiring a well-timed exit. This is a fair description of many of the lines that spill off high baldy, so let's steer our pedal extremities in that direction. You know this cliff-striped adventure park is in play when the tram concierge omits high baldy from the litany of area closures announced just before docking at the top of Hidden Peak. Try not to betray your excitement, for only a few cognoscenti will have grasped the significance of this non-utterance. And like any great powder field, highbaldy is best when savored first. To catch the highbaldy traverse, toddle as inconspicuously as you can straight past the top of chips, hewing to the ridgeline, and when the hill begins to rise in front of you, start climbing. If one is fit, it only takes about six minutes to climb up to where the traverse begins, and if you're not fit, you'll find a well-packed trail to follow. As you climb, reflect on the fact that Baldy was for many years a permanently closed area. In a few more minutes, you'll discover why. Endorphins will start to flow in anticipation of the big boomba that lies ahead. Your awareness of your wild, otherworldly surroundings sharpens. As soon as your skis are back on, you'll be hyped to snatch the first yummy goods you see, but you'll forfeit some vertical by not moving on, so onward you go, traversing around a sharp corner that comes up fairly quickly. The wind batters this exposed crease in the mountain, so you take the lower line to avoid the variable conditions of the high line. Just ahead, a playground of infinite permutations awaits, with big lines off to the skier's right or, sliding over further, ultra-steep veins against the cliff. Still further on, the comma shoots are a good call, but if you are one of the few who arrive here first, fields of glory beckons just below you, sitting, waiting, pristine. Because of your perspicacity, you have a one-tram lead on the general public, giving you time to stick your tails in the snow so your skis aim straight down the gravity stream. The current runs fast on Baldy, so as you lean into it, you must commit to its flow, finding the inner cadence to match it, allowing you to stand still in the moment even as you glide with quickening pace downhill. Here is where hands and feet have business to do, the hands setting the beat, the feet guiding the ship. By holding your hands high, you remind your upper body to stand tall for maximum elasticity when required. Your feet probe the snow at varying angles, feeling the resistance build, and by that feel knowing when to release the energy you're generating. Your turns form a wave like a tone from a tuning fork, a tone emanating from the mountain, a tone with which you harmonize as you descend in gravity's rhythmic embrace. Wrapped in a multi-sensory mosaic unlike anything else, profoundly immersed in the moment of now, your conscious attention is focused with full intensity on the glistening terrain ahead. At 30 miles per hour, you and the wave are one, but a choke point rushes towards you, so you bring it down, always keeping hands and feet moving in harmony with the hill. Whenever you move through hairy terrain, Remember that what looks perilous to you is mother's milk to many of the denizens of this fabled mountain. It's best to consider every terrain feature a potential launch pad and every other skier a possible astronaut. Most of all, realize that for every launch there is a landing, so don't dawdle in the landing zone. Getting out ahead gets you out of the way and buys you a buffer of tranquility in your pursuit of the perfect line where hands and feet 
can move in sync with the mountain. This has been Jackson Hogan for Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Happy holidays to you all.